Hello, and welcome to episode 60 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, March 4th, 2021. Big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? It's just great. How are you? I'm good. It is apparently World Book Day. So, uh, really? Yeah, I think it's more of a British thing. I'm seeing all my my British libraries that I follow on Twitter yeah. are commenting on it. So I don't know what exactly it involves, but it involves books. So that's exciting. I can that's get behind always a that. Win. Yeah. yeah, sounds good to me. I'll go to the library to celebrate because I am out of books. Again? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That's too bad. Oh, <laughs> Speaking of International Book Day, yes, it's in International Book Day, right? World Book Day. World Book Day. So knitting books, and this is not a genre that I usually go in for, but I was visiting my friend Sally, who is a prolific knitter, and she showed me a knitting book called 52 Weeks of Socks. Ooh. And then... One of our listeners, Stephanie in Sonoma, wrote me and said, not only is there 52 weeks of socks, they just released 52 weeks of shawls. And this book is gorgeous. It's got a beautiful linen cover, incredible photography. And I like a shawl. My feet are too hot for socks, but I will go in for shawls. That is exciting. And that leads us into On the Needles, which will be followed by on the easel, on the table, and on the nightstand, where we get back to all our book talk. Yeah, that is, that's a lot of shawls. So is it by many different authors? Uh, authors? No, her last name Designers. is Lane, L-A-I-N-E, and I haven't seen the shawl book yet. Hmm. I, I paged through the sock one. That means because... yarn in French. What? That means yarn in French, I think, or wool. Oh, okay. You want me to look it up while you're no. talking? Okay. No. Um, I just find that interesting. That's a great last name. You know, why, like, why isn't my last name? Quash. Quinacridon. <laughs> Courtney Quinacridon. Oh my God, that's a mouthful. <laughs> I... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quin gold. It's my favorite color. Oh, okay. I have no idea what that was. Better yet, Courtney Indigo. There we go. That's what I'm changing it to. Courtney Indigo. Done. I like it. Okay. Good to know. Good (laughs) to know. All right. So, oh, and fair warning, Sock Madness, we are in the 48-hour window of waiting for the pattern to drop. We got the specs at like 1 a.m. this morning. I mean, I wasn't awake then they arrived, they were posted. That's the first thing they do for Sock Madness is they post what kind of yarn you need and if there are any extras like beads. We need beads for the qualifying round. The madness is fully beginning. And then sometime within one minute after the specs are posted and up to 48 hours, we will receive the pattern. So there may have to be an announcement while while we are recording. Although I think the betting seems to be heavily in favor of it'll be like the full 48 hours, but maybe it's a European designer. So they're waiting for their weekend to, to kick off. So we're looking like Saturday morning for them, but you never know. You never it's, know. What it's just to. so exciting. I, I don't know how I'm going to build my bracket for this or anything. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the snacks. All your money um, on me. Okay. <laughs> I'm focused. Um, Incidentally, 52 Weeks of Socks and 52 Weeks of Shawls is Lane Publishing. That is not her last Mm. or any one author's last name. However, I am sticking with Courtney Indigo, perhaps. I like it. I like it too. So I have socks coming up, but I am not working on them yet. I am still working on my, what I have since heard called the Shan uh, Pullover by Elizabeth Doherty, S-I-A-N. It's... Scottish Celtic word, I think, that I began last time. It has been kind of up and down. I 
Love it. The yarn is beautiful. Three Irish Girls Springvale DK in Gatsby and Art Deco that has been in my stash since June of 2010. So it's probably time for that to become something. So this is a yoked pullover with slip stitches. So it looks, so it is two colors of yarn and it looks super fancy, but you're only using one color of yarn per row. So you don't have to worry about holding yarn in two hands or picking up and dropping it all the time. Um, so it's a little bit easier than sort of traditional color work, but an equally gorgeous effect. And so my, my hope was to kind of get this through all of the color work and the sleeves because the bottom part is just straight stockinette. So that would be a good project to have during the madness because I can pick it right back up. I've got all the complicated parts done. I can easily pick it up once I finish with my sock. So I would definitely be there, except that I'm an idiot. <laughs> so it is a beautiful, beautiful pattern. It's in several sizes, it's so clearly written. There's like six or seven little color work patterns that she has really well organized. It's amazing. She put so much work into that thing. It's it's a work of art. So I was knitting along and knitting along and knitting along and I finished with all the body color work. And then I was a little bit worried about how much of the main color yarn I have. According to the design details, I should have plenty of yarn. It didn't feel like enough yarn. So I thought, okay, well, I'll put the collar on and then the neckband and then maybe do the sleeves and you know get all that stuff done. And then I can see how it's fitting. I can see how much I have left for the body because there are two body options. You can do a, an A-line, so it's a little wider and looser or kind of a straight, more cropped. I would like to do the looser one because I am not in my twenties anymore. And the crop look is not the best on me, but we work with what we have. So I went ahead, put the collar on tried it on and then was looking at it flat and it looked super wonky. And I was trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out. And I realized that somehow I had screwed up the placement of the sleeves and that the center front of the sweater was kind of in the middle of my short rows. So this, that, is, this is a totally a Courtney move. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So like now you know one, how I feel oh, every time I knit. So bad. And so one side had like the left side between the neckband and the sleeve start had like 12 rows and the right side only had six because there is shaping so that your back and the collar is a little bit longer than the front because of how bodies work. And it was all shoop squished around. So I was like, how did I do this? And I thought it's totally messed up. I'm gonna have to rip everything out. I thought, well, maybe I can just rip it back to where I started the color work and leave in the short rows because I did that part right. And I realized, wait a minute, it's just that the sleeves are wrong. I just have to rip back to the sleeves and reshoop <laughs> so that everything was lined up correctly. And I figured out what it was when you're placing the slit, when you're setting up for the sleeves, you're supposed to slip a bunch of stitches back onto the needle. And instead I slipped them forward. So I did not read my pattern properly. So it was totally my fault, but it was ended in the end, a fairly easy fix. And I figured that part out before I ripped out the entire thing. Cause that would have been really, really painful. And then since I'd already done the rest of it, it made sense. And it was a pretty quick, Renit, and then I looked at it. I was like, yes, I did do it correctly this time. Everything is lined up. So then I've got one sleeve done and I am, ooh, I would say two thirds through the other one. So right now for my sleeve, I've just got like another inch or two left. And then I do a little bit of color work on the end of the sleeve and then the cuff. And then I will decide what I'm doing with the body. So depending on when this pattern drops, I could definitely be into the stockinette portion of the body. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then hopefully I won't run out of yarn, which given how things are going <laughs> in my world, it could, it could definitely happen, but we'll see. So that is Shan by Elizabeth Doherty. 
I did another snap hat by Tin Can Knits in blues and greens. And I need to post a picture of that. I don't think I've posted a picture of the recent ones. So I'll need to, to post a picture. And I'm kind of taking a break from those because I'm pretty devoted to the sweater. And then I don't think I talked about this last time. I am trying to get a hold of my, my stash numbers. Part of it was doing the snap hats and working on old projects that have been languishing. And I also copied from Imagine Landscapes her more out than in process, which is keeping track of how much yarn you have coming in and going out and to try and be negative at the end of the year. Doesn't matter how much, it could be one yard in the red, I guess. <laughs> you want more out than coming in. So, so far I'm doing really well because I've knit two sweaters and not bought a lot of yarn. So I'm currently, it feels like I'm up 4,500 yards, which is pretty good, but I may have made a few purchases recently. So we'll see how this all goes. So it doesn't count until it arrives. So like if I order a club now, but it doesn't arrive until May, that doesn't count until May. So, so we'll see. And if it, you know, it ends up, I'm totally in the wrong way at the end of the year, I'm not going to be too upset, but I just feel like keeping track of it is at least making me more mindful of my purchases. You know, I do have a lot of sweater quantities of yarn, so I don't really need more, but there are always good reasons that I can come up with. And I think as long as I'm thinking about it more, I will feel happier about it. Well, you have a duty to support the industry. <laughs> exactly. Very true. And that is definitely one of my excuses many, many times, but I do also I do want my yarn to grow up and be its best self, which it cannot do if it is just sitting in my cupboards. So, but yeah, so not too many things. I'm, I'm being pretty monogamous, which is kind of, kind of interesting. Oh, I do have another pair of socks that's kind of living in my car. Uh, that's going to be for Simon. They get like two rows done at a time. So it's not terribly exciting. And that is all my knitting. What is on the easel? Well, two, not, I'm not knitting anything, but two knit related things. I was really chilled this week and I threw on my Murnong hat and wore it oh, around, nice. which is kind of rare because it's San Francisco and it's like always 64 here, but it was it's a been, little chilled. It's been a little chilly. Yeah. And yeah. we had some dampness too. So, yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. I think it's been two years since you made that hat for me. No, one year, one year on the money. And then I did do a quick peek to get to the bottom of this 52 weeks thing, <laughs> the sock book just released on Valentine's Day. Oh, that's super recent. It's very recent. And the shawl sibling does not come out until winter. So oh. I have put it on our winter gift list. You know, Got I it. keep I keep yep. a running list of gift ideas all year long for our November podcast right. about gift ideas. And I just added it because I don't think it'll be out till then and maybe even later, but it'll remind me to keep an eye on it. So, yeah. and they've already done, unfortunately, they've already done a call for submissions because I thought, hmm, maybe we've got a listener or three who build patterns. I don't know, but they've already yeah. done the call for it. It sounds like they're probably going to do others in the series though. So if you are a pattern person, keep an eye on that. Okay. Easel. Oh my goodness. It's been an easel bonanza around here. The nutshell version is that I taught a class. I taught a, a portrait class, one section of a 30 day portrait class through sketchy. And that's S-K-T-C-H-Y, which is an app, or at least I knew it as an app that people could upload portraits and you could use them to paint from. And I've been on there for a while and I have used some of the muses in their, their big database, but my challenge I think I remember them, you talking about that. Yeah, I, I discovered them through... Charlotta Hamilton, who goes by Blue Shine Art. And she she is very prolific on sketchy. And I don't do as much portraiture. And sometimes I'm looking for a specific portrait. 
and they don't have as many old ladies. And I like to paint old ladies. So I taught a class and my, my muse is an old lady and I love it. And I basically turned it. I think I was, a, I know I was a last minute addition to the class, which is fine. And so I had to turn it around pretty quickly. And the painting part of it was like, A, okay, it's hard for me to paint and talk, but I'm getting better at it the more that I practice. The really tricky part was all the tech stuff. You need to make sure your phone is in this mode and like do your lighting and no shadows and it can't wiggle. <laughs> so that I had it all set up. I had my, was getting ready to paint and on the first day and I have, um, I have an arm that clips and I had it clipped to my desk, but I also have a drawing board and I thought, well, it's not clipped to the drawing board. It'll be fine. Every time I would rinse my brush, the whole thing would shake. Not a lot, but like it would bother you probably if you were watching. So I sort of lost a day just trying to figure out where I could set up this rig for painting. And I tried to do it in the kitchen because I have this big island in the middle, which is well lit and it has a big marble countertop on it. So I thought that's not going to move. It moves. I mean, everything is super sensitive. And then I thought I was going to have to do it on my dark countertops, the quartz ones that go around the kitchen. And the light changes so fast back there because it's north facing. And it was just like, what is, <laughs> just felt foiled at every turn. And so finally, I set up this totally crazy rig in the art studio with like an easel and a piece of wood across the top that was like perched on the windowsill and the camera above it. And that was an independent structure. And I weighed down the easel. It was like, I don't, I don't know what to call it. Inventive. It was inventive. And then I sat down and painted the thing and it worked out great. So that comes out March 23rd and Sketchy is doing this thing all month long. And I think I'll, I'll try to post a little bit of it in our podcast loop, just so people, I actually have took a self portrait. So, which I never post portraits ever, ever of myself. So I think that will be good to put me with a piece of work. Cause you are so good about posing with your sweaters, your knitwear. So I want to make that. Well, they fit. So <laughs> otherwise they just don't look as interesting. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Art can stand on its own. Thank you. I, I hope that this class can stand on its own. It was a really great challenge for myself. It was a great opportunity and a challenge to try this format of painting while speaking or narrating my process. And, and I recognize that my, my process is so different from people who just do portraits. And I don't just do portraits. I do landscapes and seascapes and typewriters and lots of different things. So it was just, it was a really good experience. And I'm kind of glad that it's over with for right now. The other thing that was on the easel, and I know you, you're always so good about these, Daria and I did the gouache grids started the gouache grid I thing again. I saw most of them. There's, I, I, I so love the differences. Like they're the same, but they're different. It's amazing. It, it is a crack up for the two of us even because it really matches our personalities. Like she is way cooler than I ever, ever was. No, for sure. Whatever. <laughs> well, and these mushrooms that I painted this month are... I keep calling them the pastel librarians because they're just sort of dusty and <laughs> I'm showing Monica they're beautiful. the dusty librarians. And I did sneak a snail in there because That's I adorable. love snails and it's my, you know, mascot. <laughs> so we really had a lot of fun with that. I think we have six more to go, although we might buy another pad of that great watercolor paper and keep at it. It's endlessly fun. And the hard, the hard part is 
what should we paint next? And then we sort of back and forth for a few days about what our next subject is going to be. We still haven't decided for March. So we'll see. That's, that's been really fun. Socks. And clocks? Socks. Oh, at first I thought you said fox. And then I heard clocks, like all in that same thing. It must be an echo, but socks. All right. I'll suggest it. Or clocks. Clocks could be good too. Yeah. She vetoed clocks. What about that? I know. And then I said, how about chairs? And she said, no, thanks. And then, so we're still duking it out. It's all good. Then I have my abstract stuff still happening, which I'm not ready to show the world because it is a hot mess. However, I was working on the abstract stuff when they asked me to do this portrait class. And I was such in such a great flow and like my energy was so good. And that's why I said yes to the portrait class because I was like, sure, <laughs> let's do this. It was just, even if I never show the abstracts, I think it's going to be a part of my background process because it is very freeing and it's a great way to explore textures and color and I'm still aiming to do something with it. That's not just splashes, but yeah, it's been, it's been an important background piece for, for my process right now. So that's it here from Courtney Indigo. Okay. So on the table, my cooking has been a little, I've been cooking, but we had a birthday week, which meant lots of favorites. So there was not anything that anybody needs to hear about. Pretty sure tacos and enchiladas are something that everyone has on their, their own menu. What else do we have? Lasagna. Lasagna was pretty good. And then the other thing I've been cooking from is, and we haven't talked about this yet, but we keep meaning to, we're doing another cook along and we're cooking from Sheet Pan Suppers by Molly Gilbert. And it was funny because Courtney... I don't know how you came across it, but you got it out of the library and asked me about it. I was like, oh, I've had that one for years. So it's kind of fun to go back in there. And I, I, it's one of those ones that sort of keeps ending up in the rotation. And there are quite a few recipes that are on my regular rotation. And I keep diving back in to find new things. So this, so this time I've been trying to find some new recipes that I haven't either haven't cooked at all or haven't cooked in a while. So I can't talk about those yet. <laughs> so that's all the stuff I can't talk about. I did finish off quinoa month, I guess. I sort of ran it over because there was no quinoa during birthday week, I will say. That did not make the menu. But I had this really cool recipe that I wanted to try from my broccoli short stack cookbook, which is these tiny little cookbooks. I don't know that they're doing them anymore. I haven't seen any new ones come out in a while, but they're each... I don't, I don't think they are. Yeah, they have... They had a, f a series of them and then they never appeared. So I'm not sure what's going on with that. But so this was the broccoli one and each, each book focuses on a single ingredient. So this was in the broccoli one and it was for miso broccoli and potato casserole with crunchy quinoa. There's the quinoa. It was quite delicious and much easier than I thought, except for the crunchy quinoa bit. So it's basically like a broccoli and potato gratin put some cheddar cheese in there, cream and miso, which she said it kind of blended and just added a little some something. I really didn't taste it. So I'm not sure if maybe it was really blended and just kind of went with everything else and really just the deliciousness was in there. I mean, what like kind was, of miso did it call for? Do you, do you white, recall? Uh, white miso, I think. I think red miso has a little more oomph. I personally 100% prefer red miso over okay. white, but for what it's worth. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I had it in the fridge, so it wasn't like I bought it and then didn't taste it. It's not like it was complicated to add. I didn't break out the mandolin to cut the potatoes. I just sliced them as thin as I could. That seemed to work fine. The broccoli, you don't even have to, uh, you put it, you, so you put everything in a pan and then cook it just a little bit, only for a few minutes, just to kind of get everything coated. 
with the oil and the cream and get a little bit of the cheese mixed in and then bake it. And she had you transfer it to a separate casserole. I just left it in my Dutch oven kind of thing and stuck that in the oven that worked fine. So the quinoa part of it is a topping and you cook the quinoa and then deep fry it and then sprinkle it over the top. So it was delicious. <laughs> Definitely added some crunch. Yeah. I did not have a good way of transferring it from the fryer to the paper towel lined plate, which I didn't realize until I'd already kind of dumped it all in there. <laughs> so that was, that was interesting. So I need to, to think about that and how we might improve that situation. Yes. What do you, what do you mean? So normally if I'm frying something or boiling something and I need to pull it out, I have uh, slotted spoons, but quinoa is going to go right through a slotted spoon. So you needed like a fine mesh scooper, which I do not have. Was there a lot of oil in there? Yeah, you were, you put like a two inches of oil. You were so definitely trick, frying it. Mm -hmm. My trick for that is to tip the pan and get all the oil on one side, sop up the extra oil with the kitchen uh, paper towel, mm -hmm. and then compost that. And then you can just spoon the rest of it onto another paper towel and sort of blot it. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So I just sort of take one piece of the equation out. I know yeah. what you mean. And I have struggled with that. Like with when you would fry panko and maybe have too much oil in there or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. So definitely needed a better process. Pancetta. Pancetta works like that too for me. Yeah. You know, when you have the tiny bits of pancetta. Right. And, yeah. You need to get them out. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't had to deal with that in a while. Oh, but that does make me think of, apparently there is now an air fryer attachment for your Instant Pot, which could be a game changer. Only if you're going back to eating pancetta. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> I am not. I would love to, but then I would have an air fryer for like French fries uh, and uh, things. Uh, uh. It, was, it was, sorry, it was not pancetta related. It was a, a frying related thing. So um, I am contemplating that. I have looked into the air fryers because when I was in Connecticut and I played with my sister's deep fryer and with mixed results. And I thought, oh, it would be cool to do, to try an air fryer because you could get that same crisp without the deep right. part. And I think that it gets really mixed results as well. I don't think it's Kelly has one, which I think she likes. Oh, really? I just don't know how much she, I think she has used it for French fries and things um, for the most part. I just don't know how much it actually gets used. So mm -hmm. I don't know that I would get a whole separate one, but if I have one, that's just an attachment that upgrades my instant pot. I mean, I could, I could probably work with that. Although again, I don't know how much I actually need it. Decisions. If I could make, I could make crunchy quinoa with it, that might be good. Yeah. So Casserole was definitely good, much easier than I thought it was going to be. So I could definitely see that one getting made again. It was very starch heavy, which was, you know, a big hit in the family. Potatoes and cream and cheese are always going to be a winner, even if you throw some broccoli in there. It was definitely more potatoes than broccoli. So that was a good balance. And then a little update on the green sauce that I was so excited about last time. Husband used it all week long. So I made it for was a quinoa salad and there was some of it left over and he was putting it on everything. So that was a win as well. I was pretty excited to see that because usually I'll have leftovers of sauces and then I'll use some of it, but most of it won't get used. I was like, look, green sauce <laughs> here, put it on that. He's like, oh, okay. That's a good idea. <gasps> this is great. So all week long, he was, he was a happy man. And then I finally had success with Tres Leches cake, because I've made it a couple of times. I made it twice last year. And one of the times was for boy two's birthday. And that was why I made it again. Part of it was, I don't think I gave it enough time for all of the, the milk to soak, soak in. If you're not familiar, it's you make like vanilla cake and then pour a combination of evaporated milk and sweetened condensed milk and regular milk. And you let it soak in and the cake is all just drenched in this delicious milky goodness. And I kept making them and forgetting how much time it would actually take for it all to incorporate. And so I would have 
a giant puddle at the bottom of the cake and then the top would be, or I guess the middle more would be a little dry. So I found a new recipe online and I'll have a link in the show notes and you made it in nine by 13 pan. So we also had cake for more than one day, which was kind of exciting. As I was baking it, it looked a little thin. So I was kind of worried and it came out, you know, it was not a huge, big, fluffy cake, but I think this was key because then when you put all of the liquid on it, I also did it in the morning instead of two hours before I was going to serve it. So the liquid did have plenty of time to soak in. There was less cake for it to soak into. So it all got liquefied. (laughs) That's not the right word that I really want, but it all got super, super moist and it was delicious. So I was very excited about that, that I finally, finally made it work. Bravo. Thanks. It was good. And then I got little gold edible glitter stars and sprinkled them all over and had gold candles and it was quite nice. What has been on your table? Well, it was a birthday week here as well. And by that, I mean, it was my birthday and I wanted a break. How'd that go? Somewhat successfully. Nice. The boys got some rotisserie chicken from Limon, which is here in the city. And oh. it's a, I know it's Peruvian rotisserie chicken. So the two special magical, the three special magical pieces of this include, I don't have to cook it for starters. Two being that it's the Peruvian method of rotisserie is to season under the skin and on top of the skin. Sorry, vegans. Here we go with my chicken talk. But that makes for a really well-seasoned chicken. And then even if if they pick it up early in the day and we put it in the oven, it gets really crispy and gorgeous again just by reheating it. So worth it, totally worth it. And it comes with, speaking of special sauces, it comes with this I-E-A-J-I, I don't know how to pronounce that. It's like a yellow garlic sauce and it's awesome. I think my husband is particularly protective of his little container of garlic sauce. Everybody gets their own container? Yeah, pretty much. Seems reasonable. Yeah. So that that was really nice because I was in a painting frenzy and I just wanted to paint. And so the rotisserie chicken worked for everyone. Then you sent me milk bar cookies, which... If you're a longtime listener, you know that I love the Milk Bar Cookbook by Christina Tosi. And when I was in New York last winter, I took my sister to the Milk Bar store and we tried the cookies and they were not as I was expecting because I had only made them from the cookbook. The tin that Monica sent was super fresh. They were delicious. Oh, they good. Were a huge treat. And everybody was sort of fighting over which one they wanted and which one they wanted next. And the, there's a celebration one in there that they had a great time comparing to the Smitten Kitchen celebration cookie. Oh. And they were very hard pressed to make a vote. But They are very thrilled that I own the cookbook now, now that they've sort of had a taste for them. I think that there might be some more requests from that cookbook. And it's a wild cookbook, I should tell people. It's not straightforward at all. There are a lot of pantry recipes that she wants you to make, like milk crumbs and cornflake cereal milk crumbs and like just lots of building block recipes that you sort of need in your arsenal to then make the cookie, which I don't mind because this is a cookie household. That was why I went with the cookies. I was very tempted by, they had cakes and pies and all of their bakery stuff. And it all looked really delicious on the website, but I had to remind myself that you guys are, are really a cookie household and to go with that. Yeah, their cake is pretty beautiful though, their celebration cake. And they have some so gluten-free I'll free options too, gluten-free cakes and whatnot. So that was kind of Oh, cool. really? Yeah. 
It was, it was really fun, unexpected. Thank you so much. And it came in a, a great tin that will probably end up holding paint in the art room. Multi-purpose. Um, yeah, totally. Other than that and some typical, you know, rice bowl or chicken roll recipes, I, I too have been cooking from sheet pan suppers, which has been a total lifesaver on my paint deep dive sessions because I feel like I can scan the recipe, put everything on, either it's the raw ingredients or the rough ingredients. And then when I have a half hour in the late afternoon, throw it all onto the sheet pan, toss it into the oven, and then there's a decent meal 45 minutes later. Super helpful. And I can't wait to talk about this cookbook more. It is, it's been in circulation for a while. It's nothing new, like Monica said, but it's been really useful for this busy season for me. How did you come across it? I think I was searching fast weeknight dinner ideas and it popped up as a book along with, you know, there are a few others that we've talked about in the past, the dinner, a love story. Uh, the Tuesday night one that we reviewed last year. So there, there was one other one, but it was like cook for two. It was based on Mm -hmm. like a two person household. That's not going to do it. No. I mean, I'd have to double everything for sure. For sure. Triple. Triple. Yeah. Yeah. We are, we are not a two person household. So yeah, I'm excited. When are we, when are we thinking we'll talk about sheep pan suppers just so we're thinking next time next time i think yeah so you'll have given it a pretty good run through right by that point oh yeah i'm okay i'm probably 10 recipes in okay yeah all right so let's let's schedule that for next time sounds great yeah and that's that's it out of the kitchen i've been i'm you know painting in the kitchen basically (laughs) (laughs) well we have plenty to talk about next time so stay tuned all right on the nightstand so my first book I'm not really going to talk about. I'm just going to mention it because I can't not talk about things. Um, so Tender is the Night by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which we read for our book club, drove me insane, but we did have a really good discussion. <laughs> I don't know if we have any Fitzgerald fans out there, but I am not one of them. And I think that's enough. So moving on, um, I have listened to two and a half additional Louise Penny books in the Inspector Gamache series, A Fatal Grace and The Cruelest Month. I finished and I am, I think, halfway through, I don't know, whatever book four is. So they are a mystery series. They take place in Canada uh, in this cute little town for the most part. The first three take place in the same little town that's like an hour and a half outside of Montreal. And Inspector Gamache is the head of the homicide division. So they take place in this little town that they keep describing as idyllic, but it's been three years and there's been three murders. So mm, not sure that's really the best place to live. So it's kind of a, a miss. It feels a little bit like Miss Marple meets Hercule Poirot because there's kind of a standard cast of characters in the little town, an artist and her husband, who is also an artist. And that's kind of the Miss Marple. She doesn't really solve the mysteries, but she ends up becoming friends with the inspector and she has a lot of insight into the town. And then this fourth one that I'm listening to now, they're at a lodge on a lake, kind of a national park sort of thing. And they run into each other there and uh, someone ends up dead. Big shock. So <laughs> the artist lady is kind of the Miss Marple or the uh, Jessica Fletcher of the series where if she shows up, you probably want to get out of town because someone's going to die um, and they work together. And then there's some other side stories and background things. You really get to know the characters. So I'm enjoying the series. I can definitely, I think I mentioned last time I had heard that you could sort of see her working on her craft in the first book. And as, but about the fourth book, she's really kind of hit her stride and it's a more solid series. And I can definitely see that. Uh, So I'm enjoying that. And the only issue I have is that they when they're in the town, there's a bistro. So they're always talking about the cafe au lait and these amazing breakfasts that are being served at the B&B and the croissant. And now they've moved to a fancy lodge with like a gourmet chef. So they're describing all their 
dinners and then they have after dinner drinks and then they wake up and have eggs benedict for breakfast and meanwhile we're still in quarantine i know it's killing me i'm just like oh i so want to go have someone bring me food at a fancy restaurant would that that would just be so amazing and her, and her food descriptions are really quite nice. In the most recent one, they're on vacation. So I don't know about you all, but when I'm on vacation, we spend most of the day thinking about what our next meal is going to be. Or at least I do. I don't know if my family cares as much. I spend this much time. So I totally get, so what are we going to have for lunch? I don't know. There was that you know chicken sandwich that sounded really delicious. Oh, yes. But what about the, the Cobb salad? So yeah. So I'm enjoying those. So the Inspector Gamash series by Louise Penny. And then, yeah, I had a bunch of series going on. I picked up a romance novel that is the first of the series. And I think the second one you'll hear about next time. A Wicked Kind of Husband by Mia Vinci. I forget who recommended this, but uh, I really enjoyed it. I have not heard of this author before. It's kind of a typical romance, but uh, quite funny and snappy, sharp, sharp dialogue. So I like that completely forgotten what the characters' names are, but really doesn't matter too much. So they, her um, her older brother had died. So her father is trying to protect her inheritance, finds her a husband who's an old friend of his and says, you should get married. And then that way you could, or he can inherit everything and you won't lose the house. So they are married and then don't see each other for two years. And he's he says, you just need to stay at the house and you can run it and do whatever but we don't really need to see each other, except that now her sister is of an age and needs to have her debut. So they need to go to London. So she finds out that her husband is out of town. She's like, we'll just sneak up. It'll be fine. He'll never know. We'll have a season and she'll get married and then we'll go back. It'll be fine. Except that he ends up unexpectedly in London. There's this delightful scene where they meet up talking to someone else and they start sparring with each other. And the people they're with both realize that it's the husband and wife. The husband and wife don't realize <laughs> that they're actually the husband and wife. And when they finally realize it, it's really adorable. They're like, uh, okay, I mean, it's been two years and we've only seen each other for like five minutes. So obviously there's many shenanigans and they realize that they're in love and there's difficulties to overcome. And then it all ends up wonderfully. So that was adorable. And I immediately picked up one of her other books. About, about what time period is that one? 1800s sometime. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just curious. Um, yeah, I can't remember anything. I, I don't think it's actually Regency because I don't think the wars, I think it's post Waterloo and all that. I can't actually remember. And then I read the most recent Seanan McGuire in her, oh, I forget what the series is, Wayward Children series, Across the Green Grass Fields, which is the story of one of the kind of the backstory of one of the children. So this is the series that starts off with school for kids that have gone through a doorway like Narnia. Children go through doorways and then they come back and no one really talks about that. Obviously, it could be a very difficult re-entry. So there's a school for kids that have been through this where they can share their experiences. And then in the series, they have other adventures. But so her books kind of alternate between what's going on currently, and then the backstories of some of the kids. So this is one of the backstory ones. Reagan really likes horses, and she ends up in a horse world. There's unicorns and minotaurs and centaurs. And whenever a human shows up in this world, it means something very bad is going to happen, and the human has to save the world. But then they disappear. So she's not sure how she feels about this. Lots of adventures. Her writing is really just so amazing, and she brings in so many different experiences that kids might have that are not generally represented in books. So I really like that. And then just the relationships between people are really beautiful. Um, she's just an amazing writer. So I really like that. And it, they're pretty short books. I think it was about 200 pages. So it does not take very long to get through. Um, but now I feel like I want to go back and read some of the other books because now that I know her backstory, I vaguely remember her as a character in one of the other books. So I want to go and see how it related to, um, you know, once she's back, what happened to her. So that was Across the Green Grass Fields by Shauna McGuire. And then, oh, another green book, In the Great Green Room by Amy Gary, which is a biography of Margaret Wise Brown, who wrote Good Night Moon, among others, which was really Ooh. fascinating. Yeah, this one just came out. I think there have been some other ones about her. And What's Amy, it called again? In the Great Green Room. 
Amy Gary. And I guess Amy Gary was working on some publishing project with Margaret's sister. Margaret Wise Brown died very suddenly at only 42 years old. And she was apparently prolific. So she had tons of unpublished stuff that never came out. And Amy asked her sister if she had any stuff. And she's like, oh, yeah, I think we've got a trunk with some stuff. Dug it out. This huge trunk just stuffed full of songs and stories and ideas and so much stuff. So Amy has been working on her papers for how long ago? It's 1990, 30 years. So she had access to a lot of information that was not available. And just the time that has passed, a lot of people are more willing to talk about her life, which was very non-traditional, certainly at the time. That sounds fascinating. It was super fascinating. Like you have no idea. And kind of it was at the beginning of children's literature as a thing. Uh, She had several people in her life who maybe didn't exactly support her being a writer, but at least if she's going to be a writer, she needed to grow up and write real literature for grownups because writing for kids was obviously not a real job. I hope everyone hears the sarcasm and the air quotes in that. And she had so many ideas about publishing and working with kids uh, and how she got to that point was really interesting. Her personal life is amazing. She was, she wasn't fully New York society, but definitely related to that. She dated a prince of Spain at one point, boarding school in Switzerland. She has a cousin who's a Carnegie. She almost married a Rockefeller. So you get that kind of really interesting New York. High society. Yeah. Yeah. She died in 52, I think. So, you know, it's the twenties and the thirties and the forties in New York. So really interesting stuff is in the style that I don't love. I think this is this is when I say I don't like memoirs. This is what it is. Um, it's in that third person where she's, you know, writing like Margaret went out and looked at the tree and she noticed the leaves fluttering and like you don't know that. And she might actually because I think it sounded really like she had access to a lot of her journals and I'm sure she was writing all the time. And so I, I feel like probably some of this is documented, but when it's supposed to be a historical text to a certain extent that fictionalizing well I guess it makes it more interesting reading it just annoys me but that's me but the actual information was really interesting Uh, so I I did enjoy that and learning about her and then finally oh my gosh five-star book America is not the heart by Elaine Castillo I just love this book so much it totally grabbed me right from the beginning it starts off with a second person narrator which is so interesting and then goes into the full story which is kind of a a more traditional narration um it's the story of hero which is short for Hieronima, and she grows up in the philippines and then ends up moving to america in her early 30s because she's gone through some stuff and kind of has to leave the country the main focus of the story takes place in 1990 in the bay area anything Barry is kind of interesting to me. Do you get that? You also get her flashbacks to her experiences when she was growing up. She's living with her uncle's family. So you get all of those relationships. She starts meeting people in the Philippine community in the Bay Area and getting involved in that. So you get all these different levels of connections. And she is a recent immigrant hanging out with people that have been there longer, but still sort of think of themselves as immigrants. And, but then when you go, when they would go back to the Philippines, people would say, oh, you're American now. So all those different ideas about home and community and, you know, what belonging means and and where your home is and your family and love. And there's so much that happens in this book. Yeah. I just, it was amazing. I couldn't, I hated every time I had to put it down and I couldn't wait to get back to it. So I was so glad I found this one. Um, and that is America is not the heart by Elaine Castillo. That's such high praise. Yeah, it's been, it feels like it's been a little while since there was a book where I was just like, oh, so that was fun to find. It does have some very adult content in the middle that I was not expecting because it's not a romance novel, but there it was. So if that is not your thing, just, you know, be prepared to skip a couple pages. There is a little bit of potential child endangerment. Nothing happens, but that is in there as well and discussion of torture there's not anything super super graphically described but it is in there so it's not an easy book but it's not I think as hard as it could be 
just some things to be aware of. Um, and a lot of it is based on the author's own experiences I was reading at the end. So that's kind of interesting too. And that is it for me. Well, that's a great way to end. That book sounds really interesting. Well, I read four books. The first one was Tinkers by Paul Harding. And this slim novel won a Pulitzer six, seven years ago. It is, the descriptions of it are kind of bizarre. And I, I turned to the descriptions because I thought, how am I going to describe this? It tells the story of a man who's on his deathbed. And this book has been on my shelf for six or seven years. I had picked it up somewhere. And then when I got on the plane to go to the funeral that I was flying to, realized that it was a book about a man on his deathbed and promptly closed it and put it back on the shelf. And so I finally felt in an okay place to be reading that and was searching my shelf for books that I hadn't read. So this is a book about a man who is reflecting back on his life. And it is intertwined with the story of his father who left at a really young age and how he's trying to come to terms with why his father left. His father was an epileptic And I think it was like turn of the century Maine. So rural setting, the father drove a cart full of wares. He was like a door-to-door salesman. And he realized that he was going to be more harm than good to his family because in rural Maine, there, there was no hope for the disease. Nobody was really thinking about how they could help him. And so he walked away from his wife and kids and went away. And come to find out, he landed in, I think, in New York. And there were people there who were much more knowledgeable about epilepsy and were able to help provide a treatment that helped lessen the severity and the frequency of his seizures, all unknown to his family. So it jumps back and there's a lot of time jumping as the son is looking back on his life and the life of the father. And it's kind of hard to follow. And it's a slim novel. So it's all together quite poetic in its prose. And it's a little bit of a challenge. And then interjected in between these memories and narratives is like sections of an orologist's, you know, like a clockmaker, watch, watchmaker about how to fix a watch or a clock or how to keep it well timed. So the that vein of fixing time or keeping time in parallel with the time running out on the main narrator is all adds to the tension of the novel. It's a tricky little thing. I don't know that it's for everyone, but I found it kind of beautiful in its sparseness and and that ability to look back. It was sad too, for sure. Then as I was painting and exploring things, I listened to The Searcher by Tana French, which was not, not what I was expecting at all. Oh, really? No, I don't. I think the other books that I had read by her, there were lots of characters and stuff going on. And I felt like this one kept really closely to two main characters, an American who was retired from the police force and had decided to spend the rest of his life fixing up a house in Ireland. And then this young child who he sort of befriended only because the child wouldn't leave him alone and a mystery around the child's sibling. And it turned into this full-blown small-town Ireland, holy catfish, it took me by surprise in a lot of different ways. I adore that main character. I forget his name. I meant to write a note, but I was painting. It would have been a page turner had I been reading it, but I just like let it run in the background. It was so great. It was super entertaining, gripping narrative, very well-built characters, and I was in for the long haul. Um, Oh, good. Yeah, I really liked it. It is. And I, I had not really thought about how it is. It's definitely a mystery, but it's a less straightforward mystery than her other ones. So I can see it is more about the characters and not that her other books aren't also about the characters, but. Yeah. yeah. And I really appreciated it. it was written from his perspective. 
And I really appreciated that there was one piece of it where he was sort of estranged from his daughter and he didn't know why. And at the end of the book, he still wasn't totally clear on that. And I like that she left his, his ambiguity, even in comparison to how he was dealing with this child. I thought that that was really stunning, like so stunning. So bravo to her, Tana French. I just thought that was really well done. Then I read We Run the Tides by Venda La Vida. And this takes place in San Francisco because we love a Bay Area novel. Yes, we do. 1980s. There's a fictitious school in Seacliff, which is not so fictitious if you live here because it's an all-girls school and hello. I forget what she calls it in the novel because I keep calling it by its proper name, but Uh. I won't do that here. So my husband grew up in San Francisco and I really wasn't sure if this was based in some weird disappearance or kidnapping in the early eighties. And so I read the book. It's a quick read. It's, it's these 14 year olds in the eighties. They run in this posse around Sea Cliff, and they're on various. Which is a very of, fancy neighborhood. In oh the yeah, we should. Yeah. If you're not Super familiar, Tony. Yeah, rock stars it, and movie stars live there. Right, and I I don't know what it was like then, because it was originally shipping magnates, and I don't know I don't know who lived there. We actually looked fancy at a house people. <laughs> in Sea Cliff when we were looking at houses. We looked over there. And it was the only house we could ever hope to buying in Seacliff was this dilapidated ship captain. And it was covered. I mean, it was like a house that you would pluck off of Cape Cod and put in Seacliff and then chalk in all of these other houses around it. It was like pretty tight. Anyway, it needed so much work and that's that. So this novel was a little tricky for me because I didn't know if I could believe these 14-year-olds, shocker. I wanted more of the community, although there was a fair bit of what it was, what the social structure was like of this Seacliff community. And there was a little nugget from downtown and, and nearby Geary Street shops and dance schools and that kind of thing. I think the the bulk of the novel centers around this kidnapping air quotes of one of their classmates and was she really kidnapped or did she run away because she uh uh, whatever I'm telling it she returned she's returned safely and then it just mushroom clouds from there there's you know tv appearances and interviews and does she get kicked out of school or you know, who did it and who witnessed it and shrouded in, uh, you just, I don't know what really happened. And we never really know what happened. And then at the end of the book is, is I can't even call it a reconciliation because they are grown and they meet up randomly and there's an exchange about what had happened. And again, shrouded in mystery. And I feel like I, I don't know that we even needed that second perspective, that flashback. I think it would have been more powerful to just leave it as adolescence. But because my husband is a native and I asked him, I tried to do a little research and I couldn't really find anything, whether it was based on a true story. And I asked him if he knew anything about it. And he said in 1984, there was a boy his age who went missing from, I don't know if it was Richmond or Outer Sunset or something like that. And I don't know that he was ever found. And it was a moment of, I think my in-laws took it as an opportunity to say, don't go anywhere with strangers. Now here's your bus pass. You know, it it didn't yeah. create so much of a fervor as it did in this little pocket of Seacliff, which also that's, there's some gender things happening, you know, between my husband's parents and these fictitious people in Seacliff. Anyway, I was sort of just trying to, I mean, I remember hearing about kidnappings when we were young and, and hearing all the milk cartons and 
Right. And the strange danger. Yeah. But I don't remember any other protective anything beyond that. It's kind of a weird book. And I think, I think the narrators feel unreliable to me and I don't know how to ground myself in it, especially with the, the flashback. It, even as an adult, she's, I think that's what it is. Even as an adult, she's doubtful about what happened. And so it just leaves me feeling adrift, which is perhaps the point of it. We Run the Tides by Venda Levita. Then, because I have a dearth of novels in my home, I grabbed The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks from my junior in high school who has to read it for biology oh, this cool. semester, the Rebecca Sklute. Mm-hmm. So this is not a novel. This is nonfiction. And I think a lot of people will have heard about this. It's about 10 years old at this point. This is a more intimate look at Henrietta Lacks, who in 1951 was diagnosed with cervical cancer in Johns Hopkins Hospital in Maryland. She was a black woman and she had five kids. She had a big family and life and plans and and this cancer took over really quickly and she died. And the family was totally just adrift after that. It was hard for the father to take care of the kids. One of the kids was in a institution, 1950s family in Baltimore, a black family. It just was a difficult existence for them. Incredibly impacted by the fact that they didn't really know, they were never really told that their mother's cancer cells were taken for research. And the cells, and I remember hearing about this in various biology classes. And I think now I have more questions than ever before about cell research and biological materials. And anyway, doctors were trying at that time to keep cells. This is my very rudimentary understanding. They were trying to keep cells alive for research purposes so that they could test things. Well, Henrietta had a really aggressive, I guess, or unusual type of cancer and her cells would multiply so fast that they regenerated themselves, even in a Petri dish, even on the countertop or wherever. And so it afforded researchers an opportunity to have kind of an endless supply of live cells. I can see the benefits of this, but I also think it's heartbreaking that her family didn't, she didn't really, she didn't know about it, I think. There's speculation, but there wasn't me really you, any. No, my, my understanding was there was there no, no consent given. There was for no any consent law at the time, so they could have yeah. taken it from anyone, yeah. really, and and attempted it. And I think that what's profound is that because she was a woman of color, they the there just wasn't as even as much effort made to inform her or the giver. I don't credit. I don't know, but it turned into like this multi-billion dollar industry with her, where her cells are all over the world being used for really important research. I mean, the polio vaccine came out of her cells, so many uh, hepatitis treatments, just, just so many. I think where I totally appreciate Rebecca Sklut's handling of how she tells the story and how difficult it was for the family. And I think that it is such an incredibly sympathetic and human window into, yes, this is going to benefit all of, all of humanity in a lot of ways, but can we not lose track of where these cells came from? And I think that, that I'm just so appreciative of that perspective. I also want to know, like, I have sciencey questions about this. <laughs> Why would they take cancer cells? And doesn't that contaminate everything? And there's some talk about contamination, but I don't understand it. And I'm just, the whole thing is more, I'm left with more questions than when I started in a good way. I mean, it's profoundly 
the whole narrative. So if you haven't read that, I really recommend it. It's super, super interesting. And I think it's an important book. I'm so glad my kid has to read it this spring. I'm sure he's thrilled. It's been a good deep dive for me. So that's where that's where my book list ends this week. Nice. I think that's so interesting. They're reading, they're reading books in biology class. I would have loved to, to have been able to do that in a science class. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a scientist either. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that they're, they're diving into this. And I think it's important and especially because they're, they're looking at cells. Yeah. However, I also want to go to the lecture on the day when they start talking about this book, because I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Here, ask this, ask this, ask this. Right. I will. You just sit off, sit offside, listen in. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Yeah. He'd be thrilled. So that makes 60 solid episodes i know bravo us yeah and bravo all of you for supporting us we really appreciate that it is always a thrill just like when we get a note or a comment someone has enjoyed it so thank you to everyone yeah we've made a lot of great connections over 60 episodes with listeners and i hope that just absolutely continues we'll we'll definitely be here for 60 more Yeah, for sure. Now that we've got this recording thing figured out and hopefully sometime soon we'll be able to get back to recording in person. Although I don't know, my husband's going to be home for a while. So he's, he's using our (laughs) recording studio because he seems to think it's his office. (laughs) We'll have to work on that, but the audacity. I know we will figure it out. So next time we will have our review of sheet pan suppers. Although again, I think you can feel where that review is going. (laughs) given our comments yeah that's okay we'll get some details in there and uh yeah until next time make sure to do something you love every day thanks everyone bye show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com you can find us on instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf that's c-o-r-t-n-e-y-s-f on Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.